Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network and New Books in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, coming to you from the University of Texas at Austin. And uh, it's my great pleasure today to interview historian Dr. Catherine Gibson, uh, who is a historian of modern Eastern Europe and a research fellow of the University of Tartu in Estonia. She is a specialist in the history of geography and cartography, and today we'll be talking about her new book, just out with Oxford University Press, called Geographies of Nationhood, Cartography, Science, and Society in the Russian Imperial Baltic 2022. Catherine, thanks so much for being on the podcast with me here today. Thank you, Stephen. It's it's a pleasure to be on the the, the show. Uh, so I want to start with a question that I really love to ask of all authors, and, and I understand this is your first book. So we have an eager listenership, I think, who would love to hear about what motivated you. So what was it that that got you interested in maps and in this topic? Well, I think for many of us who are interested in maps, um, they they hold a certain fascination as um, visual and material objects. They're they're something that we encounter frequently um, in everyday life, um, in textbooks, in museums, um, and now um, also widely shared um, on social media. And um, when it comes to ethnographic maps in particular, um, the way that these are presented and discussed is often highly political, um, used as a source of uh, national pride, um, and also to um, bolster different kind of imperialist claims to different peoples and territories. But these also raised key questions for me. Um, and um, whenever I see a map, um, I immediately kind of want to know more. Um, who, who made the map? Um, under what circumstances was it produced? Who funded it? Where and how was it printed? And who was the intended audience? And what did they think of it? So um, these are all about kind of providing historical context to maps. And um, I think this is um, kind of a crucial question that we have to ask ourselves to um, understand, you know, really what it is that we are looking at. So I embarked on this project to do try and understand um, why people in the past invested so much time, energy and money into making these maps whether this was a static genre or whether the meaning um, of making a map changed um, from the first decades of the 19th century um, up to the early 20th century. 
and ultimately to try and answer the question of why these maps came to be regarded as such impactful forms of visual com communication um, when it comes to defining uh, different groups, communities, and drawing borders between them. Mm -hmm. And so I'd actually like to begin as well with the scope of your book, since you mentioned context. I'm very interested in the time and space dimension of uh, geographies of nationhood. And I noticed uh, in reading it that you're focusing mainly on Baltic countries. So it's Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, which I would guess were uh, in Imperial Russia once um, provinces, Estland, Livland, and Kurland. Could you give us a, a little orientation of, about the time and space dimension within the book of these provinces, these countries, the contents, contestations between nations and states? Sure. So my book um, focuses on the Baltic provinces of the Russian Empire, which today um, form part of the territories of Estonia and Latvia. Um, in the 19th century, they were widely known um, by their German names as Estland, Livland and Kurland, um, or also um, in Russian as the governorates of Estlandskaya, Livlandskaya and Kurlandskaya. This region um, had been partially ruled by Sweden um, and um, the, the, the northern um, uh, uh, sections, um, so Estland and um, Livland um, were uh, transferred to the Russian Empire in the early 18th century, whereas the province of Kurland, which is today in southern Latvia, had been a vassal of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and then was incorporated into the Russian Empire at the end of the 18th century. Um, so while these three provinces had um, quite distinctive um, histories, um, the region collectively um, being, became known as the Baltic provinces within the Russian Empire. And although they were incorporated into the empire, they retained um, quite a distinctive uh, character and status. They were characterized by uh, German-speaking elite class who were known as Baltic Germans, um, the manorial economy system. Um, the region maintained a degree of autonomy over local governance. Um, it had a special code of laws and also um, was um, distinguished from the rest of the empire um, by the uh, majority Lutheran faith of the population. The lower classes, the peasants, um, were mostly Estonian um, or Latvian speakers, um, although there was also significant numbers of uh, Russian speakers, Jews, as well as old believers and Poles, especially in the southeastern part of Kurland. So um, what makes this, this region really interesting is that this complex um, history and um, 
multiculturalism, multi-confessionality, means that the region was situated at the crossroads of various um, imperial and nation-building projects in the 19th century. We have uh, Russian imperialism, um, and especially after the 1880s, during the period um, of so-called intensified Russification uh, policies, there was attempt to really um, try and integrate this region uh, more closely with the rest of the empire. At the same time, you also had attempts uh, by um, the local Baltic Germans to also try and define their relationship to the empire, um, as well as their their locality, the the idea of um, this Baltic uh, region being being their heimat, their their, their homeland. Um, and also their relationship to other groups of German speakers in Central Europe. And then we also have um, emerging um, Estonian and um, Latvian uh, nationalist movements um, as well, um, as well as um, the various um, other groups as well within the region. And what I really wanted to try and do by focusing on this region was um, that whereas I felt that um, today's territories of Lithuania, Belarus, Poland and Ukraine have really been at the center of much excellent research on spatial history, on new imperial history that has emerged over the past decades, the Baltic provinces have actually been surprisingly absent from some of these wider conversations. I think um, perhaps on the one hand, this is due to the, the kind of the autonomy that I've just mentioned, the, the kind of uh, particular status of the Baltic provinces, which um, has led to them um, here historiographically speaking to be kind of treated um, separately, a bit like the, the Grand Duchy of, of Finland. Um, another reason might also be issues of, of language and sources, since um, for most of the 19th century, much material is in German and uh, historians um, with uh, who kind of specialize on the Russian Empire um, don't always have uh, G- German language. It's, it's not a given. So um, my aim in, in, in kind of writing this book, in, 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 in focusing on the Baltic, was really to see um, how we can integrate the Baltic provinces into some of these wider conversations about um, imperial borderlands in Eastern Europe, um, but also to draw attention to how some of the particularities of the Baltic um, region can help um, challenge and push our understanding of Russian imperial history further and in new directions. Mm-hmm. I, I want to pick up on a couple of those comments. Um, first, uh, simply to, to congratulate you on this kind of breadth of a project because the, the linguistic challenges are so daunting. Um, and I noticed that, that you have archives that are in German as well as Estonian and, and Latvian and Russian. So uh, my question for you, Catherine, would be if, if you could explain to us a little bit more about this history of ethnography and these artifacts, the maps, ethnographic maps and map makers. Um, there are many of, of these original maps that you've included and, and Oxford University Press has, has done a good job reproducing them. But um, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about this tradition of ethnographic map making from, say, the 1830s and 40s up to and through World War 
One, were the conventions in the Baltic, say, different from um, Habsburg lands or Central European lands? And what, what made it so? Great questions. So the genre of the ethnographic map um, was um, kind of... Uh, arose, we can say, in the kind of late 1830s, uh, 1840s, um, out of uh, German-speaking Central uh, Europe, um, this kind of um, intellectual um, uh, milieu, we can say, um, to, to kind of try and understand um, various uh, nationalities questions um, that was emerging. In my book, I try and show how um, many of the uh, kind of key figures within um, the Russian um, Academy of Sciences and um, Imperial Russian Geographical Society were um, intimately embedded in these networks. Many of them were um, so-called um, Russian Germans, so um uh, Russian imperial subjects who had um, German ancestry or were from German-speaking families. And um, they were part of this kind of vast um, trans-imperial um, network of scholars who were all um, experimenting with how to use um, geographical methods, how to use methods of data visualization to um, understand questions of um, imperial um, diversity and nationalities questions. Where we see um, kind of ru the, the Russian Empire, um, uh, the, the kind of history of ethnographic mapping in the Russian Empire um, going in its in a different direction, so to speak, is that um, in the second half of the 1840s, the, the very first ethnographic um, maps that were um, produced within the Russian Empire, um, uh, a project which was um, spearheaded um, by uh, Peter von uh, Köppen, um, who was a statistician and a member of the Imperial Russian Geographical Society. Um, and together with his um, colleague, Karl Ernst uh, von Baer, who is head of the ethnographic section at the Imperial Russian Geographical Society. They were really interested in using um, ethnographic mapping to understand and, and map um, the empire's Finno-Ugric populations. So this was very, very much rooted in um, the kind of um, 18th century practices of um, ethnography in the Russian Empire, which was about um, exploring um, often the, the northern um, regions um, of, of, of the empire. And this translated also into um, ethnographic mapping. So this is why we see in the second half of the 1840s, the first ethnographic maps produced in the Russian Empire were um, of places like the Grand Duchy of Finland, um, of St. Petersburg province. There was interest as well in uh, the Baltic provinces, um, these regions that were close to St. Petersburg, um, but inhabited by um, Finno-Ugric um, populations. So this we can say it was a kind of convention or, or a kind of more distinctive um, Russian imperial approach to the genre. Um, moving forward um, to, to, to think of 
the kind of second half of the 19th uh, century, um, I see less and less um, distinction there emerging. Um, we, we see the same um, kind of tensions between um, the, the use of ethnographic maps to map um, various kind of emerging um, uh, nation, national territories um, within empires and also more kind of expansive um, attempts to, to kind of map um, uh, communities um, of Slavic peoples and uh, Germanic peoples as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about that a little bit. I, and again, just for um, our listening audience, because I, I can't possibly do justice to all of the chapters. Um, Dr. Gibson has five chapters in, in the book. So the first is Networks of Cartographic Influence, Patronage, and Reception, second on Map Production in the Provinces, and the Rise of Cartographic Entrepreneurship, third, the Baltic Question in the Cartographic Imagination, fourth, Mapping Latvians in Local and Global Perspectives, fifth, Post-War Ethnic Boundary Mapping from Above and Below, and, you know, as a way maybe to cover some of this, and, and I guess really what uh, what amazes me is this Finno-Ugric dimension incorporated into imperial geographic science. I wonder if you could um, say a little bit more, introduce to our readers the, the names of these statisticians, census takers, borderlands, monitors, and, and ultimately, you know, the people who acquire the the talent to draw, to do what we now call data viz, but um, to, to put together these, these maps. And, and, you know, you're shifting the attention, I think, here from cartographers to map makers. And this is a very interesting move. Um, maybe you could, you could tell us some of their names and, and not just Russians or, or Russian Baltic Germans, but eventually some, some of the, uh, other Baltic peoples, Latvians and Belarusians and so forth, who become involved in this process. Yes. Um, so as you um, kind of mentioned, one of the, the things, the, the kind of concepts I was working with the book was to, to, to look at map makers rather than um, kind of these well-known geographical um, superstars that we, we might um, be aware of if we are familiar with uh, kind of history of science in the Russian Empire. Um, but to really look at those who um, engaged in uh, different processes um, of uh, map making and of map production, but who may not have been um, self-titled um, or even thought of themselves as, um, as cartographers or, or map makers per se. So, um, um, as you mentioned, um, in the second um, chapter, I'm interested in um, the role of local bureaucrats and also um, entrepreneurs, um, cartographic entrepreneurs and and printing houses. Um, So this chapter centers on the figure of Alexander Sementovsky, who was actually born in what is today Ukraine, but um, as was quite typical for um, kind of... uh, Russian imperial civil servants at the time. He he served in in various different um, provinces, and um, where I pick up his story is in the eighteen sixties and eighteen seventies when he was secretary of Vitebsk Provincial Statistical Committee, and. 
Um, Semintovsky is an interesting figure because while today he is primarily known um, as um, uh, an ethnographer um, of, 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 of Belarus, um, of, of Belarusian language and um, uh, folk culture, um, among contemporaries, he actually developed quite uh, a strong reputation for his enthusiasm for mapping statistical data. Um, but his name doesn't really make it into the kind of history of cartography um, in the Russian Empire per se, um, because despite his um, his efforts to try and publish a statistical atlas of Vitebsk um, province, um, his his work was hampered by uh, the limited budget, um, logistical challenges of trying to commission a printer in St. Petersburg to publish his maps at a time when um, the, the kind of local printing infrastructure in Vitebsk couldn't, there wasn't the necessary technology um, or skilled personnel to kind of realize his, his map vision. Um, so actually most of his um, mapping projects never came to fruition, but this didn't mean that he was trying and he was working behind the scenes. And I think um, his is a really interesting example because it tell, it makes us aware of um, the maps that we have today that are in archives that have been preserved in library catalogs um, are only a very small um, proportion of um, the total kind of cartographic um, activity and cartographic um, print culture and interest in cartography that was uh, circulating at the time. And um, it makes us um, self-reflect also on how the, the archival or library record reflects the priorities of those who are making, consuming and preserving collections both in the past and today. So he's one of the characters. Um, another um, uh, figure that um, I, I draw attention to is that of Matis Silinch um, in, in the fourth chapter of the book. And he is um, widely uh, kind of held up in, in Latvia today as um, the first uh, Latvian uh, cartographer. Um, he was a school teacher um, of, from quite a humble uh, background. Um, but um, in the 1890s um, in Riga, he um, uh, started a, a publishing business to produce popular calendars. So these were kind of small books aimed at uh, lower class uh, readers, and um, he wanted he 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 published um, fold out maps um, that accompanied these calendars. So again, um, this is an example of um, borderland um, cartographic uh, entrepreneurship of creativity um, happening in uh, in. In indigenous um, vernacular languages in, in Latvian language in the Russian Empire taking place outside of the, the imperial metropole and, um, and addressing quite a different readership. He was addressing um, uh, a, a kind of a lower class audience of, um, uh, of readers and consumers yeah, and and I think one of the big arguments, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, um, but I, I see you know really compelling in your book this argument about cartography from from below and social 
dimensions of, of mapping. And, and here I think about um, some of your comments about the, the changes toward the mid or maybe end of the 19th century, that maps began to concentrate on things like, like housing or public health or um, urban statistics. I mean, trying to uh, fuel information or give information to different different ministries. And, and I guess, um, you know, I'd sort of ask you about that, if you could tell us how that shaped or framed the Baltic question or, or questions. Um, and I think, of course, of Holly Case's work about the 19th century is as an age of questions. Um, so I, I guess I wonder, since you mentioned um, Sulinch and, and Latvia in, in the 1870s, how those questions were then created or shaped by these spatial social activists, among which you would maybe include map makers. How, how did they give us a Baltic question or, or Baltic questions through, through ethnographic and linguistic mapping? So I, I'm really glad that you, you mentioned the work of Holly Case because um, reading reading her work really made me see um, the maps that I was looking at and also to um, kind of uh, revisit um, this, this debate about the Baltic question in a whole new light. So just um, very briefly for our listeners, um, the Baltic question was... Um, one of these these big kind of 19th century um, questions that um, emerged um, and it, it it was it's it started um, after the the failed Decemberist uprising of 1825 when um, it was a time of um, self-reflection of introspection um, among the Empire's elites who were evaluating Peter the Great's uh, westernizing reforms of the 18th century. And um, to put it very briefly, um, on the one hand, some of this kind of particularities of the Baltic provinces, which I mentioned earlier, um, meant that the region was um, perceived um, as, as very much being part of the West and um, was used to present Russia as, 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 as a true kind of European empire. Um, on the other hand, um, a group of uh, thinkers known um, collectively under the umbrella as Slavophiles um, began to kind of question this and um, to, to, to think about um, Russian culture um, as being um, something separate, as being distinctive um, and um, apart from the West. And in this context, um, the Baltic provinces seem to really uh, kind of reaffirm some of these anxieties about the diversity of uh, imperial populations as a, somehow a threat to the Russian nation and an extension of Western culture and values into Russian Russia's borders. So um, bearing this in mind and, and very much um, uh, taking inspiration from the work of Holly Case, um, I, I looked again at lots of the ethnographic maps that were being produced um, in the second half of the, the, the 19th century and um, really began to see how these maps were kind of positioned as um, attempts to understand some of these questions um, and also attempts to propose answers and solutions using methods of data visualization. 
So in chapter three, I talk a lot um, and uh, discuss the work about of Alexander Rittich, um, who um, produced um, a, a series of maps which presented the Baltic provinces as very much being closely connected to the Slavic world um, and um, to, to, to make arguments about the underlying historical connections and um, cultural uh, affinities um, between Estonians, Latvians and um, other Slavic populations. And um, I, I guess since you mentioned Ritik, um, how, how does he compare with some of the um, I don't know if you would describe them as, as Latvian or Lat- Latvianizing um, mappers, but I mean, definitely you've got a contrast between Rittig, for example, who's kind of imagining this borderland liminal space as a, a civilizational clash between Germans and Slavs, or at least an incorporation into empires. And then, you know, compared to, say, August and Martha um, Bielenstein or Bielenstein, I, I, you know, could you maybe tell us a bit about how the Latvians in this trans-imperial world begin syncretizing and, and borrowing and then creatively um, making their own arguments in these maps, for, for lack of a better word? Because I think there are a lot of arguments, um, give, given what you say, this popularization of, of map literacy and print culture and visual data. Yes, that's that's a great question. And I think what it really um, comes to is um, all of these map makers um, are experimenting with how we think about um, uh, different um, human groups and, and the borders between them and on what scale we need to think about them. Right. So people such point. as yeah. Rittich... Um, he was um, very much a kind of advocate of, of, of um, and practitioner for, for mapping the Slavic world and for, for seeing the Baltic provinces as somehow um, on the fault line um, between um, the German world and the Slavic world, as, as he would put it. The other map makers that you mentioned, so that I discuss in the book, um, August and uh, Martha Bielenstein, um, were um, both um, Baltic Germans from Kurland province. Um, August was um, a local pastor, but um, also um, uh, had, a, had a very um, passionate interest in Latvian ethnography and linguistics. And um, over the course of his uh, career, in addition to his um, uh, pastoral work um, published um, many, many, many works, um, important kind of scientific works as well. But for him, he very much approached it as um, a way of understanding um, what he called his his heimat, so his homeland, his locality. He wasn't um, so interested in um, this 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 kind of high. Uh, level division um, between a Germanic world and a Slavic world. For him, he used mapping to try and understand um, relationships at a more local level between uh, this Baltic German high culture and socio-economic elites, and then the local Latvian um, peasantry and lower class populations. Mm -hmm. And Martha, tell us about Mar- Martha, because I, again, I, I, one of the big arguments in your book is, is this kind of 
in invisibilization of, of women in cartography and, and social and, and indigenous populations. So who who is she? And and I guess how how do we bring in the stories of, of um, activists who are maybe left out of the great hero stories? Mm. So uh, Marta Bielenstein was um, August Bielenstein's eldest daughter. And um, if you look her up, um, she's not a well-known um, figure um, at all, really. But um, if we look at the map cartouches of her kind of famous father's works, we see this um, initial M. Bielenstein um, written um, on uh, as an acknowledgement on the on the maps, um, crediting her with withdrawing um, the maps. So paying attention to these small details actually raises lots of interesting questions about cartographic um, production. And delving into her story, um, we, 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 she, we see that she, actually, she never married. Um, she stayed at home um, to care for her parents. And um, Martha was crucial in uh, helping August to compile his ethnographic maps um, for, for his, one of his major publications, which was an atlas of the, the Latvian uh, language. Um, she drew um, and colored the, all the manuscript uh, maps um, for, uh, for her father. Um, some of her brothers also um, helped with various projects as well. And um, later in life, August actually became completely blind and um, came to rely on Martha almost completely for, um, for, for, for his scientific work. So um, for me, Martha's story reveals perhaps two big things. Um, the first is that um, the late 19th century, um, we, we often think of as an age of booming print culture in the Russian Empire, and this also included maps. However, even in this age of print, we mustn't forget about manuscript maps. And actually, a large portion of people's social experiences of map making took place in manuscript form, such as through sketches on paper or drafting maps. And while many of these haven't survived or aren't catalogued in libraries, they form a kind of rather substantial part of cartographic culture and are crucial for understanding the spread of cartographic literacy and um, engagements with um, th these forms of visual communication within society more broadly. And we can actually see by um, uh, the, the uh, historical uh, archive um, of Latvia in Riga actually has one um, of Martha's uh, draft maps and there we can see actually the influence that she had on um, aspects such as design and color. So um, she definitely wasn't just a kind of assistant, but was actually kind of fundamental in, 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 in the visual um, production um, of, 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 the, of the work. But I think Martha's story, secondly, also raises important methodological questions for historians about how we can find evidence of this often invisible cartographic labor taking place. And this is where I found it helpful to um, engage with 
um, perspectives and approaches um, from history of science, which very much emphasizes kind of pl different places or sites of um, scientific production. So there's been some really um, interesting work um, by people such as Donald um, Opitz and um, Christine von Oertzen about um, domesticity and science in the 19th century, looking at female family members, research assistants, etc. Um, and also the kind of um, gendered um, dimensions of um, paper um, in 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 the history of science and how we kind of can look um, for different sources and, and read different sources against the grain to try and uh, tell the stories of those who's, who might not be present, represented in more traditional sources or in um, library catalogs. Uh, yeah, and, and I guess um, there's, a, there's a big story with the history of the Latvian intelligentsia as well, and um, the the spaces for for production and consumption and communication, um, what Catherine would you would you suggest if I could follow up on this a little bit for researchers who who want to examine the not just the history of science but also this gender dimension of of cartography? Is there something special, let's say, in the Latvian or Latgalian case where, where, let's say, you know, we can begin to look at the, the popularization or the aestheticization of, of maps and, and the fine details in, in that kind of trademark way. Is, is, there a, is there a Latvian exceptionalism, I guess, is where I'm going with this? Um, but, but what can we get out of, let's say, going to the archives or going to the special cases in, in the 1890s and 1900s? Um, I, I would be hesitant to say that there's um, so much um, of an exceptionalism in, in general w w when it comes to the gender dimension. Um, I think, though, in terms of when we talk about social class and consumers and readers of maps, where the Baltic really um, can um, challenge some of our assumptions is um, is literacy. So in the second half of the 19th century, the inhabitants of the Baltic provinces were highly literate. Um, it was the most um, literate region of the whole of the Russian Empire. And this was thanks to the um, system um, of elementary education, which um, was, was quite um, established in this region. And we see that also this literacy also um, encompassed cartographic literacy um, as well. So um, children, if we look at uh, kind of pedagogical uh, programs for, for teaching geography, for teaching history, maps featured prominently. And also um, for uh, lower class adult readers among uh, cartographic uh, kind of uh, print culture, which was very prominent um, in newspapers or in kind of popular calendars and chapbooks, like the, the example I mentioned earlier of Matis Silinch's uh, calendars. I think the, the other factor that really um, helped um, uh, cartographic cartography to kind of flourish more broadly was also issues of uh, censorship and the regulation of cartographic 
print culture because um, unlike in the Northwestern um, Territory um, to the south, so the the region corresponding to present-day Belarus, Lithuania, um, where there was a ban on printing in Latin letters from the 1860s to the early 1900s, which was a a kind of significant um, barrier or limitation, we could say, towards um, map production in, in languages such as Lithuanian or Belarusian. The Baltic provinces were not subject to this this ban, and this um, actually led to um, the the visibility um, of Estonian and Latvian language cartography, as well as uh, German maps, um, and 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 allowed this this these maps to 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 circulate um, to an extent that wasn't possible in other regions um, of the empire at the time. So I think. Returning to your point about um, the kind of gender dimension, um, I think, uh, I mean, it, it is it is um, a challenge to um, uncover um, the the kind of archival um, traces or kind of materials related to um, those who um, were not the the named authors on the maps, those that were were involved um, in production. But um, some of the, the, the factors that I've just mentioned um, do um, perhaps mean that we, ha- we have more evidence in this region than we, than we do in, in, in other parts um, of the empire, sim- simply because um, uh, maps um, were, were circulating m- much more. Mm-hmm. And and I have to say, you know, as someone who, who's followed your work for a long time, I love how you rewrite the story of the Ilyin um, cartographic firm in, in St. Petersburg, the, the commercial firm that started in 1859. So it, it extends in different parts of the empire. Um, I'm, I'm also intrigued, and this is just really one small point. I was thinking about Celian since you mentioned him and how he had to stop producing the, the calendars in, in 1898, like one year before the Atlas of Finland was produced, um, which I think you know tells us something about patronage and, and scale and, and the priorities of, of empire in, in making certain maps featured and, and perhaps um, other individuals or groups of people less, less prominent. Um, I, I do want to ask a question since you did mention um, censorship and, and I guess um, I'm really thinking about this in, in the work that I do about World War One. So your last chapter, I think, is a really fascinating one about uh, boundary mapping. And, and I wonder if you could um, talk about Estonia. This is, this is an invitation, um, really, since you're in Tartu, uh, to, to get you to talk about conflicts or, or wars maybe that, that didn't happen or, or that didn't break out. And, and here I'm thinking about the Estonian-Latvian border and the Estonian-Latvian border commission after the war. But tell us why Estonia becomes, becomes so important as well in this history of, of cartography and these cartographic legacies and corals. Hmm. So, um, I mean, uh, when I was writing the book, I was kind of faced with a dilemma of do I, do I include every mapmaker or do I, you know, try and um, 
pick some case studies, so to speak, that I can kind of um, explore and unpack. And I know in in your work as well um, with your with your with your map men that um, you know it, it 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 poses a kind of uh, uh, similar dilemmas about you know how we how we choose um, to to tell the stories of cartography. Um, so. Um, there's no kind of dedicated chapter in my book um, related to Estonian cartographies per se, but um, the the fifth chapter that you mention um, dealing with the um, cartographic kind of legacies and and different quarrels that emerged um, immediately after the. Uh, First World War um, brings some of these um, these different um, themes and issues um, to the fore. So um, after um, the, the the declaration of um, Estonian and and Latvian um, independence um, in in 1919, um, there was a special Estonian Latvian boundary commission established to uh, basically agree on the border between these newly independent states. In some ways, we could argue that this was still quite um, hypothetical um, as um, various conflicts in the region were still um, ongoing, but it was deemed to be um, crucial for their kind of claims to... um, national self-determination and to to kind of claim sovereignty in the region that they had a very um, kind of clear idea about where where the borders would be drawn. Um, But um, although the two sides kind of approximately agreed on the region where the border would would fall, um, there was fierce disputes over the finer details over how to draw a line through a region that was inhabited by uh, a mixture of both Estonian and uh, Latvian-speaking mostly um, farming um, communities. And it really um, kind of pushed... Um, this this discourse about drawing borders based on ethnolinguistic factors, about claiming territory um, based on the idea of national self-determination to the extreme, because the Boundary Commission um, in the the attempt to to kind of enact an ethnolinguistic border. Um, produced extremely detailed um, ethnographic maps and surveys of the border region at the scale of individual farmsteads, um, cl- classifying them either as inhabited by Estonians um, or uh, by, by, by Latvians. And um, what um, was, I think, especially um, interesting about this case is it wasn't just a top-down process. Some of the developments that I've been talking about, you know, such as the, the kind of spread of cartographic literacy and the circulation of cartographic print culture within society, meant that there was an awareness um, among um, local populations about how cartography could be used to um, give voice to claims. 
And actually, um, the the Estonian Latvian Boundary Region uh, Boundary Commission, sorry, during this period, um, received um, a kind of outpouring of petitions um, from the local population. Some of which were also accompanied by hand drawn maps using um, cartography to um, to to challenge the proposal for where the the border would be drawn and to to advocate. Um, for um, their th- th- what they they saw as as their rights and and wishes. Yeah, um, I, and you have so, such um, good examples of this. I remember the story of Jan Karm, the, this complainer. I guess, I guess it's a grievance, right? But it's it's a petition, and it's a very logical citizen farmer complaining that the border splits his farm in two. Um, and and so I guess that. Now, that voice and that agency, which you rightly point out, becomes a form of, of counter-mapping. I, mean, I, I don't know if it's counter-hegemonic mapping, but, but maybe you know, it becomes a tool for at least putting, um, putting dialogues in place. Is, is that fair to say? Yes. And I mean, in many ways, this isn't a, a kind of new phenomenon. I, I, I discussed the work of, of Valerie Gievelson, who has done um, wonderful research on the use of um, a petition, um, petition maps um, uh, and maps in, in legal cases, um, in but in the early period, more in the early modern period, as a tool to um, to, to 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 attempt to settle um, land um, disputes. But what we see moving forward to the early 20th century is that this um, kind of cartographic means of communication suddenly um, is much more accessible to um, a much wider um, segment of society. So among the petitions, we have um, local farmers, we have um, women um, writing um, and, and, and drawing maps. And um, so we see that this that this this kind of mechanism for for communicating um, through um, visual uh, visuality through um, through mapping through this this form of material culture um, suddenly um, it is is taken up by a much wider um, segment um, of society. Mm-hmm. And and I guess my my last question for you is is a big philosophical question about cartography which I've been um, dying to ask you and, and, and maybe we can uh, use this as a, as a way to leap into the field and, and how you see it and critical uh, geography and cartography the things that you're reading and, and my big question is really the philosophical one and it's can anyone make a map and and I guess this is something I'm covering almost every day in, in uh, the archiving work that I'm doing about the, the war in Ukraine. Um, you know, d- looking back now at the history of, of Finnish, Estonian, Latvian, Lithuanian mapping, is it, is it true that anyone can make a map and, and do those maps consequently make a difference? Um, I think um Yes and no is, is, is probably the, the way to answer this question. I think that um, there, there have to be kind of certain um, kind of preconditions. Um, so one of them has to be some sort of cartographic spatial literacy that needs to be in place for someone to kind of produce something that um, can be um, read and understood by others as, uh, as a map. 
Um, so um, it, in, this is why that um, it's only um, by the late uh, 19th, early 20th century that this um, kind of mass um, phenomena of, um, of of cartographic literacy, um, I think that we can can really um, we say I would be hesitant, for example, to to kind of trace it much um, much. Uh, much earlier to, to make the claims that it was it was such a, a widespread um, phenomenon, and I think the other important point to raise is about what we we think of as a map, because um, um, a lot of the time we we have these preconceived ideas that, um, for example, um, a map it it has to look a certain way, it might have to be printed, it might have to be, you know, kind of circulated in, in certain in venues, etc. And um, what I was trying to do um, with the book by um, also um, placing a lot of emphasis on these hand-drawn um, manuscript maps was to show that you don't need uh, um a large amount of money, you don't need a sponsor, a funder, you don't need um, a, a printing press, you don't need to be skilled in chromolithography, um, printing technology, that um, still, um, um, as it is uh, today, um, that if you have this kind of cartographic literacy, then there are there are varying kind of means um, through which you can make maps. So in the case of the, the farmers in the Latvian-Estonian um, border region um, after the First World War, if they had access to um, a piece of paper and a pencil, um, perhaps also some colored pencils or something, they could, they could um, produce a map. And just like today, if we think about um, um, all of these kind of... Um, citizen science projects and online tools where people can contribute to various um, kind of crowdsourcing um, mapping projects. Um, I think we can see a kind of similar um, kind of uh, shift in that you don't need to be um, trained in surveying and technical drawing um, to make a map now also with digital technologies. There are lots of ways in which um, we can also become map makers as well. Hmm. Yeah, I think about the the famous story, Catherine, of, of Woodrow Wilson um, from the inquiry with, with their twelve hundred maps, spreading out the the maps on the floor and and trying to determine the Polish border. Um, so it, obviously there are other tools, and it, you don't you know, necessarily have to master ArcGIS <laughs> or story maps. Um, today there, there's a history of data viz and and, and spatial relationships that. Um, certainly are part of the age of nationalism and imperialism, but, but precede the digital universe, um, right back, back in analog land. Um, so could you recommend some books for us here at at New Books Network? And, you know, we're we're hoping that that a lot of uh, interested people will will hear you out. Uh, so what are you reading or what might you suggest to our audience? So, um, for, so um, in terms of books that have been um, kind of particularly influential for my own work, um, I'm going to um, divide them into two categories. The first would be um, for people interested in um, histories, new histories of um, the Baltic provinces within the Russian Empire. And um, I have uh, kind of two um, books I'd like to mention. The first one is, is actually in German. It's by um, Karsten Brüggermann. Um, called Licht und Luft, 
des Imperiums, so the um, light and air of uh, the empire. And um, it is an attempt to um, really uh, understand these different um, kind of ways um, among the Russian imperial elite of imagining um, the Baltic provinces in the 19th and early 20th century. So if you can read German, I, I highly recommend you check it out. The other new book um, is by uh, Siobhan Hearn, Policing Prostitution, which um, is um, a really innovative uh, social history um, of um, the region. And um, it's, it's a wonderful example of how um, the, the history um, of the Baltic provinces can be written, drawing on um, archival material from a, a wide range of, of different archives, both um, kind of archives in the Imperial Center in St. Petersburg and Moscow, but also um, local archives in, uh, in Tartu, in Riga, in Leipzig, in in, 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 in Latvia. Um, so um, I, I recommend um, if you're interested in learning uh, more about um, the Baltic provinces to check those two out. And in terms of um, recent books about cartography, one of um, my, my favorites um, is by Candice uh, Fujikane. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's called Mapping Abundance for a Planetary Future. And um, she really uh, kind of uh, draws on um, various um, different approaches from um, from. Um, kind of indigenous studies, etc., to to look at this, and she had this concept of of mapping abundance, and um, for me this was really kind of um, illuminating uh, um, to to also understand kind of strategies um, for mapping. Um, uh, making by Estonians and Latvians and the Russian Empire to kind of um, to, to present um, a flourishing um, kind of national territory um, that was um, apart from uh, kind of Russian imperialist um, uh, kind of influences and ambitions in the region and and also German claims as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for those. Those are great recommendations. And at Fujikani, I'm thinking about how um, she describes Hawaiian communities. And um, it, it was a pleasure, actually, to interview Siobhan Heron as well uh, about her book. And, and um, I hope our, our listeners uh, will, will follow through and read these um, and, and check out the blog Peripheral Histories, if I can give a quick plug to that. I know that, that you and she have been uh, both involved in that. So I wanted to thank you, um, Dr. Catherine Gibson, for this conversation. I've been looking forward to it for a very long time. Uh, And I wanted to mention the book again. The book we've been talking about is called Geographies of Nationhood, Cartography, Science, and Society in the Russian Imperial Baltic, authored by Catherine Gibson, published by Oxford University Press 2022. Congratulations um, to you on on this beautiful book once again. And and thank you, Stephen, um, for your time and also for the wonderful questions today. And I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here at New Books in East European Studies, New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies and New Books Network. Until next time.